Welcome, adventurers. As our tale progresses, we draw slowly toward its eventual conclusion. But there are still some tales to be told about how it began. Season 5 starts now. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon As the wagon crawled to the top of the street, the shadow of the buildings to either side faded, and the warmth of soul's setting rays fell upon her back like a welcomed blanket. She let the reins loose in her hands, eyes closing. Gimbe's pace slowed, sensing her driver's ease. The store lie ahead, up the next hill, another two hundred paces or so. But if she turned right, her fathers would not mind. Sarkeesian sat up and gently directed the large draft horse pulling the wagon to turn instead of continuing straight through the wide intersection. It wasn't far, less than half a mile, it being a sharp bend in the road, so sharp that to make the turn here the builders of the street made it extra wide, four carts or more. An unplanned result of this was on the downhill side of the road, no building sat directly against it, and something rarely found in Jomato existed here. A vista. Most of those who lived in or visited the bustling city scarcely looked up as they hurried this way or that, quick to be on from one task to the next. So it was that very few knew of or even cared about this little bend in the road. But to Sarkeesian, no matter where she was, no matter how dark or cold, she could always close her eyes and remember the feeling of standing here as a child. It was one place she would stroll to with her family after late dinners in the summer. She would stand between her father's, hands above her shoulders clasped by the much larger ones of her taller parents, souls setting light upon her face. Her child mind reeled as it tried to reconcile that massive burning object that hung in the sky. So bright, so powerful you could not even look directly upon it. The overwhelming sense of wonder as each night it was swallowed behind the distant horizon. Always a flutter of sorrow accompanied its passing, even once bringing her to the point of tears. On this occasion, Balsum had picked her up and asked her why she was sad. She had responded that she missed Sol so much, and though she knew it was silly, what if it didn't come back? That was the first time she had heard Gorion's name. Her father had told her about the many names associated with the god attached to Sol. Armuramil for the elves, Sunner by the dwarves, Sola Solsig by the clever gnomes. But humans and the hardy halflings referred to him as Gorion. Gorion had much work to do around the world. 
Not only did he have to keep their city warm, but the whole province, all of Gloaming Keep and beyond. It was Gorion's job to make sure there was enough light in the world for all of the living creatures to be nourished and grow, and that each day Soul's setting was just Gorion moving on to other parts of the world. Balsum paused to let this sink in, and then said, Though Gorion may leave us at night, he loves each and every living thing so much he will always return, always give his light freely to any that would receive it, without judgment. As these words had been spoken, Sarkeesian could tell her father was talking about more than just soul and the god with whom it was associated. It was then that Gorion had entered her heart had become part of her. She pulled the wagon to the far side of the road. Gimbe tossed her mane. The spot was empty, save one very old couple who stood with curved back, holding hands. What hair remained on both of their heads was as wispy and white as the clouds. The woman's skin was deeply tanned and wrinkled. The man's lighter skin was covered in dark spots and similarly creased. One of his blue eyes was clouded over with a cataract. They both turned their heads to her and nodded with puckered smiles, but they did not speak. There was an immediate understanding for the reverence of this place, and words seemed unnecessary or inappropriate. After returning the smile, Sarkeesian scooted, and hung her legs over the wagon's side, taking in a deep breath, welcoming in the scene before her. A rare, empty space, some thirty paces wide, was framed by the nearest buildings. Below, the sprawl of the old town district with its warm yellow walls and blue tiled roofs was an abstract mosaic. The Fenfergal was not visible as the buildings crowded along its banks as it passed through the city but the top half of the Jomato Monastery, around which the river flowed, could be seen standing high above the surrounding clutter. Bright strands of multicolored flags were strung across paths and went from window to window on the structures that clung to the steep rock on which the monastery was built. Beyond the rock could be seen the parapet wall of the city. Beyond that, the countryside. And finally, the warm light upon which one could not directly look. Soul setting. It unfolded like a silent dance, the changing of colors, the stretching shadows. At the last moment, a moment she could feel inside her, she looked up to see that final flash of light as soul vanished. There was still, all these years later, a tinge of sorrow, but it was tempered now tempered with her gratitude and thanks. For Gorion and all he had given this day, and all of her days. Each day she woke to await souls rising, she gave thanks for her life. Not all were as lucky as her. She knew many, far too many, that no longer felt soul's light upon them. Sarkeesian's hand went unconsciously to her belt, feeling for her sword. There was no sword at her belt. It was next to her bed, in her room. 
even a year after her service had ended, it felt odd not to wear it. Strength was needed during the Null Wars to turn back the tide that threatened to swallow the Bharata province. Being strong had always been easy for her, and not just physically strong. Her understated belief in Garion gave her a calm confidence that was valued by all around her. So often she was the rock for withering hopes to tether on, and she accepted this with a humble grace. Her competence and calm made her a valuable soldier and a natural leader, and she quickly rose in rank, ending the war with the rank of captain. During the war, she knew where she was supposed to be. Since the war had ended, it felt much different. Sarkeesian had spent a year as a captain at the Knolls Reef, the wall that had been erected during the war and after, to guard the province from further aggressions. As her time there had passed, somehow that tedious vigilance never sat right. It was a necessary task, just one that did not seem to suit her. She woke every morning of that year with a sense of unease, that she wasn't serving the purpose for which she was meant. She had often thought it was just the after-effect of the war, that it had changed her. Near the end of that year, she had received a letter from her father, Crispin, saying a horse had kicked Fasum, the name she called her father Balsum, and broke his arm. It wasn't a cry for help or a masked attempt to get her to come home, but just a matter of keeping her apprised of what was going on in their lives. In fact, the letter went on to say he was fine, and they both knew Fasum would be up in no time, which she knew to be Garion's own truth. Fasum was the toughest person she knew. Her father Crispin's letters were near as regular as souls rising. Every two weeks for the entire war, and every two weeks since, a letter had arrived. Her father's love was, and always had been, a guiding force in her life. They were good and kind, always lending help to those in need, always trying to find and make moments of joy for any that crossed paths with them. While those letters had been a connection to her home and roots, renewing her strength to continue on through the dark times of the war, this last letter felt as though it was an arrow in her heart, filling her with a yearning to be home, to see her father's faces, to be wrapped up in their embrace. So it was that after six years of service to the provincial military, she tendered her resignation. It was received with reluctance. Packing her few things, she made the journey north. Coming home had been a balm she did not know she had needed. She talked with her fathers about the war, and some things she had not even realized she was holding in her heart. Tears were shed. Food was shared. Laughter and kindness found their way back into her day-to-day -day being. When she had arrived, Fasum was trying to do far too much with a splinted arm, and Sarkeesian quickly fell into a rhythm of helping with the running of the shop. Her fathers owned a store that imported the finest cloths and supplied many of the tailors and seamstresses in the city. Her father Crispin was an amazing seamster himself, and more and more people were coming to the shop for finished pieces, not just raw materials. 
she had moved back into her old room, and for a time a routine grew of its own accord. Unfortunately, after a few months home, an unease similar to that she had felt during her time at the Knoll's Reef returned. Fasum chided her occasionally, asking if there was anything other than hanging out with two old men that she wished to do with her life. Anything that might get them closer to the possibility of a grandchild? Father always smacked him and said she could stay as long as she wanted, move at whatever pace she wanted, and that her help around the shop, particularly with the growing demand for finished products, was appreciated and needed. The unease was different this time. Instead of feeling like she was missing out on her purpose, it felt much more like she was waiting for something. What that was, she had no idea. Motion to her left stirred her from her thoughts. Soul had set. The old couple was turning, beginning to shuffle from their spot at the edge of the street. She caught their bright smiles, a sense of having shared something. The woman raised her hand in a wave. It was clear their walking was difficult. Sarkeesian smiled back. And then, after watching them cover roughly ten paces in a bar, spoke. Would you like a ride, friends? Neither turned their heads toward her. All of their effort focused on walking. But the woman raised her hand again in acknowledgement. Many thanks to you, friend. But if we stop using these shriveling limbs, they're going to stop working. A raspy noise escaped the old man. A chuckle. Resilia's blessing on you, child. The woman finished. Sarkeesian watched them a while, before turning the wagon and retracing her path to the intersection, and then up the hill to the shop. She was home in no time. With the help of Balsum, the shipment of fabric she had returned with from Fort Empur today was quickly unloaded and organized. Many of the bolts placed in groups to go back in the wagon tomorrow for delivery. A job Sarkeesian would most likely do as well. Normally dinner time would have been a bell or more ago, but her father's, knowing she was due to return home, had waited. They dined on the roof garden in the fading light of day. Sarkeesian was quiet, her thoughts falling back to those she had had while watching Soul set. The feeling of unease became almost physical, a quivery cold in her stomach. What was she waiting for? Her fathers exchanged concerned glances as they ate, Crispin finally speaking. Kesey, you okay, darling? Dark eyes moved up from her plate. A weak smile. Of course, father. Just a little tired from the trip. Crispin was better at hiding his lack of belief in this explanation, only a brow rising slightly, while Balsum's face drew into a full-blown scowl. Crispin ate a mouthful, a thoughtful expression on his face. Are you going to Resper's show tonight? He spoke after swallowing. Crispin's mind was always a few steps ahead. He had already analyzed what he presumed Sarkeesian's problem to be, what both of her fathers presumed that she was lonely and lacked for friends her own age. But instead of bringing this up directly, 
as Balsoom would have likely done had nothing else been said. Crispin took the less direct route of trying to provide and or create situations in which she would make friends. Restbirth. She stopped the sigh from escaping, if only just. Restbirth was the son of a friend of her father's. He was actually quite a talented musician, and easy on the eyes as well. The thing was, since the war, Sarkeesian just found it hard to care about such things. It was true she had had a difficult time making friends. So much of life after the war seemed trivial, like she was less alive now, less part of the hordes of people who dwelled amongst the stone, timber, and mud of Jomato. For her father's, Resperth represented a path back to belonging to this city, a way to meet other people her age and start a life outside the walls of this shop and apartment. For Sarkeesian, Resperth was just a pretty voice that issued from a pretty face, who had no idea what it was to risk oneself for a purpose, who had probably never seen death, who had no idea what she was waiting for. Go, Ryan, have mercy. What was she waiting for? Bright one, send me a sign. No one was eating now. Balsoom scowling at the lack of prompt response to Crispin's question. A frown touched Crispin's lips now. Kesey? She set down her fork and knife. She saw one tactical way out of the situation that would not end in an uncomfortable evening of well-intentioned conversation of concern with her father's. A forced smile. Was that tonight? It had slipped my mind. She wiped her mouth with a napkin. He's playing at Gorvani, yes? Pushing her chair back and standing as she finished. That is correct, Crispin replied, making to stand as well. Balsoom was also about to rise. Sarkeesian held out a hand. Father, Fasum, please don't get up. Enjoy the rest of your dinner. It is such a lovely night. I'm just going to get changed and be on my way. They hesitated a moment, but then relaxed back into their chairs. Balsoom was smiling. Crispin reached out to give her hand a squeeze. Have fun, my light. Sarkeesian squeezed his hand back and nodded. To her room she went, changing out of her day clothes. As she tied a sash around her waist, she looked at the sword beside her bed. She reached out toward it, fingers extended before closing her hand and drawing her arm to her side. She was no longer a soldier. There was no need. She frowned as she pulled on her coat and then made her way out onto the lantern-lit streets. She was in no hurry as she walked, the streets still crowded with traffic. In Jomato, there were really only a few bells in the middle of each night when they were not. She cut west down an alley too small for carts, and then north again on Shortview Road, which ran along the east side of the wall for the old town, which was much less crowded. As she was approaching a small footgate in the wall, a cluster of people ahead caught her eye. They were very close together and walking at a hurried pace. The way they moved told Sarkeesian they were in a rush to be off the road. As they grew closer, she counted them. 
six. One walked slightly ahead, as if leading. But only a pace behind, four others walked in near lockstep, surrounding the last. When Sarkeesian was only two paces from the group, some final details struck her. The face of the man in the middle was white with fear, eyes wide but staring straight ahead. One or both of the people to his side were holding tight to his arm, steering him. The one in the lead caught her gaze. What are you looking at? He growled. She had to fight back her instinct to immediately meet the man's eyes and confront him. Thinking of her sword which lay beside her bed, she forced herself to turn her gaze aside instead. She heard the man spit in her direction. The group passed, and then the sound of footsteps turning into the small gate that passed through to the old town. She walked five more paces before turning east to stop near the mouth of an alley. Turning slowly, she looked back to the gate. There was no sign of any Trine Ages patrols. In just a few beats, that group would be lost in the warren of streets in the old town, impossible to find. The fate of that man amongst the others would be sealed, deserved or not. She couldn't just stand aside. Looking once more upon the street, she had expected to see nothing more out of the ordinary. Instead, two more figures caught her attention. They were shorter and stout, both covered in dark green cloaks, hoods drawn. Between their stature and their beards, one dark brown and forked, the other black and woven into three braids, dwarves were the odds-on favorite for what lie beneath the cloaks. They too moved at a hurried pace directly toward the opening in the wall. One of them had an odd gait. It was hard to place. It didn't quite look like a limp, but was stiff somehow. The two figures made their way straight toward the gate, paused only long enough for the fork-bearded one to look around to make sure they weren't being followed, and stepped through. What was Sarkeesian to make of this odd turn? She wasn't sure at all, but she was damn sure it was much more interesting than some pretty words from a pretty man. She stepped back into the street and made her way toward the gate. Sarkeesian has seen two cloaked dwarves, as of yet unfamiliar to her but most likely they are familiar to us. What will happen inside the walls of the old town? Join me next week for part two of Soul and Seeds. Hello, listeners, one and all. Uh, season five has begun. Just wanted to say hello to you all. Hope all is well. Uh, if you haven't checked out the website yet, www.talesfromthedungeonpodcast.com. Go ahead and check it out. Tell a friend. 
Uh, if you feel up to it, a five-star review on iTunes always helps us grow. Uh, I did want to say that it is starting to grow a little bit here. We saw the biggest downloads uh, of any month by a factor of two happen this month, uh, which was really exciting. So keep listening, keep telling a friend, and I hope the story keeps going for a long, long time. Uh, take care. Love you all. Bye.